The title of tonight's talk is Widening the Circle of Compassion. And this is a phrase that, for me, best describes the heart of the bodhisattva path. And I'm not sure of when I say the word bodhisattva, what comes to mind for each of you. It's kind of a classical word, and for many people it refers to um, luminous beings way back then. And um, what I'm hoping, as we reflect together tonight, is that we'll all just come and sit down in our own awakening, inner bodhisattva, really know that that's the truth. But it can't be a mental idea, it's really embodied. There is a misunderstanding about meditation practice that um, I get into and most people I know get into, which is in some way thinking you're trying to change a self into being something better, (coughs) that uh, there's some improvement that needs to happen, that there's something wrong with us and we're trying to correct it. Yet when we really look closely at the process, at what's really happening, we're not changing a something, we're really awakening or coming back to who we really are in the deepest sense. Our very nature is enlightenment, writes Joko Beck. Our very nature is awakened awareness and compassion. Practice is about seeing how we block our natural state of being and what it means to awaken through this blockage. Our very nature is enlightenment. So here we are, all these bodhisattvas, waking up, trying to believe that that's the truth, that we really are bodhisattvas. Uh, The deep aspiration of the bodhisattva that underlies the whole path is that all circumstances, that whatever happens, may serve to wake up our hearts and minds, no matter what it is, that this too is part of the path, that this too may awaken this heart, may help to spread compassion and understanding in this world. Really, that aspiration is like saying, may I become who I really am. May everything that happens help me to manifest this innate nature of caring, of being awake. So the aspiration is really that anything that happens is an opportunity for that, an opportunity to recognize more, and an opportunity to extend compassion. Whatever being we're with, whatever inner experience is arising, it's another opportunity to open, to be here, to let our hearts really wake up. Now, as we know from the last few days together, when difficulty or pain arises, we don't always go, ah, an opportunity for compassion. I mean, that's not always our first response for some, but usually there's a little bit of a lag time. And in that lag time, there's this kind of, (laughs) a little bit. (laughs) It's all relative, right? (laughs) In this lag time, we find that we have these kind of layering of intentions. That usually what happens first is the biological animal in us goes, don't want it. You know, it's, it's a very wired in reflex of our nervous system, don't like what's unpleasant. Then there's another layer of intentionality we drop to, there's many, but I'm just kind of highlighting some, which is really has more to do with self-esteem, where we think, oh yeah, to be a good meditator, I'm supposed to be with this stuff. And it's either a looking good to others or to ourselves, but then we steal ourselves and kind of hang in with, with, with what's going on. This is kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that you know, we're, it's not pure survival that we're responding to, but kind of wanting to belong in the community of meditators and start, you know, being with our experience some. But it has to do with esteem. Gradually, because we really do long to be free, gradually, our intention drops to that deeper aspiration. Really, may this too be part of the path. Can this really help to open, to awaken? And we sincerely do drop to that level. It just takes some time. And then when we do, 
we begin to relate to whatever the appearance is, the pain, the pleasure, whatever the intensity, with interest. Because interest is an expression of awakened being, and with care, because that too is an expression of an awakened heart. Mindfulness begins to reveal this layering of intention. And how I spoke beautifully last night of how you can begin with mindfulness to see the very nature of how we cling on and really want it a certain way. And it takes that seeing to then drop down to the next layer. One of the descriptions I really like of how it all happens, this conditioning to grasp and have aversion, is the sense that we come into this world and take on this spacesuit, you know, this spacesuit of conditioning, of coping strategies to push away and hold on so we can cope with a difficult environment. You know, it's not so easy to be embodied, is it? So we take on this spacesuit, and it's quite natural. It's, again, our biology to take it on. But then what happens is we think we're the spacesuit. We forget. We forget who we are. We think we're the conditioning. And what we're forgetting and what the spacesuit is covering or obscuring is really the vulnerability of our being, the boundlessness, the wakefulness, the heart. We forget. So the activity of the bodhisattva path, and it's the activity that we're all engaging in, is to learn to meet the edge, meet what's difficult, what's intense, what we normally flinch away from, and begin each time we do to soften some, to kind of make room, to include, not push away. This really is a path of inclusion. Each step of the way, we're finding out what we've kept a distance from, what parts of ourselves, what other beings, what experiences we've habitually recoiled from or contracted away from. And every time we catch on and we really see it, we see the pain of the armor and we begin to soften. The armoring takes certain standard shapes and forms for all of us. You can see it. We all blame. When when something's painful, we either blame ourselves or blame the environment, but we all have some form of blaming. We all grasp, we all resist, we all push away, we all distract ourselves. We have have some basic strategies. And each one is accompanied in the body with some type of a physical contraction, a tightening, a becoming smaller. We can see how it's pervasive in our life, and that's one of the beauties of practice, is that we do then, in our life, sense more and more how our armoring has kept us from being really present with ourselves. We don't pause so much in our life and and really touch in, because we're defending from feeling the intensity of life, and how our armoring stops us from really being available to another in a way of, of really putting down our normal habits of distancing and listening and really touching and being touched. We can see it throughout, the ways we overeat and overdo and stay busy so that we don't have to slow down and feel what's here. We keep our heart hard that way. We keep distance from other beings, and what happens is we begin to more and more deeply believe that there's an enemy or an adversary or not a kindred spirit. We just, we don't go through life necessarily feeling so much like, ah, we're all friends, we're all in it together. We make (coughs) comparisons and distances. One friend shared this with me recently. I'm not a vegetarian because I love animals. I am a vegetarian because I hate plants. You get it, right? I actually thought it was funny. When I first heard it, I really thought that was good. Maybe it's because I'm a vegetarian. The messages most of us receive early on consolidate the sense of not being okay, in some way blaming ourselves or blaming the world, feeling not good enough. We get them from parents, from religious institutions, from educational institutions. 
And it reaffirms the armoring. We need to protect ourselves. We're not okay. We have to show the world something different, something better, cover up. We're not okay, and we have to make up for what's wrong. Annie Dillard writes, Somewhere, and I can't find where, I read about an Eskimo hunter who asked the local missionary priest, If I did not know about God and sin, would I go to hell? No, said the priest, not if you did not know. Then why, asked the Eskimo earnestly, did you tell me? (laughs) (laughs) So coming here in this way is a great opportunity to see in a real microcosm the way we armor ourselves against experience. Just in all the little ways that something comes up and we either negotiate, like I was talking the other night, make these compromises, or push away completely, or go to sleep. All the different ways. It's important to respect the tenacity of our armor. It has served us for a long time. It's really familiar. It tells us who we are. So it gets really uncomfortable when we start letting it go, because there's this confusion of, well, who am I, and how am I supposed to be in this planet and on this planet? It's a real deep habit. There's an exercise that I do with people around blaming, sometimes in small groups. The idea being that when we even intend a little to drop our armor, sometimes we can see it in metta, our forgiveness practice, how when we even try to forgive or feel loving-kindness, there's enormous amount of resistance. There's a feeling of, this violates how I'm feeling right now, and, you know, and what is it that keeps us so locked into blaming? It's such an interesting (coughs) thing, because we do it so much, you know. So in this exercise, and you can do it if you'd like, just to kind of close your eyes and check in on this one, to choose a place where you continue to blame yourself, to judge yourself. And it might be just something on this retreat, it might be subtle, and it might be very intense, but something that's been a theme or a pattern over time. Something you blame yourself for, some behavior, some attitude, some way of being, something, some way you don't try hard enough or don't care enough or you're inadequate. Not enough is usually the centerpiece. And then asking yourself the question, If the blame wasn't there, if you let it go, what would you have to feel? What would you be stuck with feeling if you weren't blaming yourself? You can continue to investigate that within. Most people in groups report some form of, I'd be stuck feeling fear. I couldn't blame myself, I'd have to have fear or the actual wound itself that I'm trying to cover up. One woman recently, who I did this with in a private psychotherapy session, uh, described an enormous amount of shame and self-blame around not working. She has a lot of family and her mo- family money, and so she's been living off of that and not working, and she just chronically blames herself for it, feels really bad about herself. And so I did this exercise, and I said, what, w- well, what would be there? If you weren't blaming yourself, what would be there? And the way she described it was that she'd really have to feel the pain and grief of not being fully alive, that her disengagement was in some way this expression that she wasn't fully in this life, and all the fear that she would never really live fully in the grief that life was passing by. And then she told me that she felt smaller blaming herself than when she directly felt the grief that was underneath the blame. It's a really important part of our practice when we find ourselves contracted in judgment, in blame in some form, to begin to drop under and feel what lives there in our bodies. To begin to do that and to forgive and to accept means softening the armor means feeling the wound and the pain that lives underneath. It means including in our hearts what we've been struggling against. 
Baldwin writes, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates of self, of others, so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with pain. So this is the first basic principle of awakening in, on the bodhisattva path, this willingness to include, this, it takes courage, which is another word for greatness of heart, to include all that's there. And as we do, we become more real and more whole, more connected with the boundlessness of our heart in any moment that we start to include more in our psyches and in our lives, including what we've pushed away. I don't know who coined the phrase widening the heart of compassion, widening our circle of compassion. I first uh, heard it through Albert Einstein, who described it that we habitually are conditioned to extend compassion only to a few people and a few experiences that are closest to us, and we exclude huge parts of the world, and that our freedom comes the more and more we open up that circle of compassion. But it's a beautiful description of the bodhisattva path to, in each day, intend to include more and more in these hearts until our hearts become unbound. But where we start is right with the experience of right this moment, of today. We start with our inner experience. And you can just check in for a moment and sense, is there anything today or right now that's difficult to include? that in some way is asking for attention or acceptance. It's a question you can offer to yourself a lot. It's a very powerful question, tool for inner inquiry. What is asking for attention? What's asking for acceptance right now? It's powerful because it's an invitation to the parts of you that you habitually push away to come out into the light of awareness. Usually, we're aligned. We, we are pushing away wholeheartedly, in a sense. We're just all agreed to push away. So when part of you says, okay, you're invited. Who's in there? What wants attention? It encourages parts of our being to come out. This is kind of essential vipassana training to begin to recognize what's true, to sense what's split off, what we've rejected, what parts of our body we're not feeling, parts of our emotional life, where our senses are closed down, and then have the willingness to pay attention, to pay attention, to notice, to recognize, to include. I'll tell you a story, um, a woman that I was seeing about two or three years ago, and she was living with a lot of anger towards her mother for abuse and neglect. Really felt like her mother had ruined her life, made her incapable currently of being in intimate relationships. And so part of what we did was, first of all, she came because she wanted to forgive her mother, which is because she realized that in some ways she had a light in her heart, had to find more peace, had to um, have some healing. So we did a regression. Another, she went back to being about four or five, and she was able to really connect with just how lonely, how rejected, how judged, how not beautiful and not okay the four or five-year-old felt. And it wasn't conceptual. There was a feeling in her body of what it was like to be four or five and absolutely feel not beautiful because her mother had pushed her away. And she connected with the little one. She connected with the young one. And this is a story you all know. You know it through friends or you know it through yourself, that there's a natural part of our healing when we feel the young or vulnerable part of ourselves. So she embraced that vulnerability. And then, for the next number of weeks, she had a picture of her mother as a child, and she just meditated on her mother as a four- or five-year-old. And because she had felt her four- or five-year-old, she was able to sense the vulnerability and pain and suffering of her mother. And there was a tremendous amount of freedom that came out of that. Freedom to go and become her adult 
more free self and be intimate and so on. We have to open the circle of compassion inwardly before we're able to really do it with anyone around us. We have to include the parts of us that feel most wounded. For most of us, the juiciest area for continuing to open is with the people that are closest to us, because that's where the most attachment, the most love, the most fear is playing out. So that's really the invitation to to expand and to grow. Another therapy story, um, more recently I was working with a couple that very much loved each other and were very, very locked in a painful kind of reactivity where each one set off the other's deepest fears and feelings of being a bad person, bad personhood. So we did what is very common in couples therapies. Each had time to really express their pain. The other was asked to really listen. And then after that, uh, we did what in, in psychodrama is called a role reversal, where they just switched positions. They did it physically, they adopted the other's posture, facial expressions, as well as they could everything, and were asked to kind of express what's the pain, our vulnerability, our stuckness of this place. And once again, I was really awed by what happens when after we felt fully what's in us, we then open to sense how that might be living through another human being. She had an eating disorder and she'd been trying and failing and trying and failing to get it under control and was feeling really awful about herself, but even worse because he was judging her and condemning her and just couldn't understand why she didn't have the willpower. And he felt totally stuck because he could not open to any compassion at all. So when they switched, she was able to feel how much he felt diminished because he didn't have the heart to be in an understanding place. And, and she was able, and he was able to feel just what it was like to be stuck in an addiction. It was quite beautiful. Thoreau writes, the greatest miracle is to see through another's eyes even for a moment. Now, Forgiving and caring and being able to see through another's eyes is um, very, very difficult when the wounds are deep, when we still feel vulnerable and unsafe. And, um, and it takes some time and patience when there's a wound of great magnitude to really forgive ourselves for something or someone else. I've been very moved by readings from the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Collection, and this is one um, I've shared with some of you at different times, I think. It's from Offerings at the Wall. Dear Sir, for 22 years I've carried your picture in my wallet. I was only 18 years old that day. We faced one another on that trail in Chu Lai, Vietnam. Why you didn't take my life, I'll never know. You stared at me so long, armed with your AK-47, and yet you didn't fire. Forgive me for taking your life. I was reacting just the way I was trained, to kill VC. So many times over the years, I stared at your picture and your daughter. I suspect each time my heart and guts would burn with the pain of guilt. I have two daughters of my own now. I perceive you as a brave soldier defending his homeland. Above all else, I can now respect the importance that life held for you. I suppose that is why I'm able to be here today. It is time for me to continue the life process and release my pain and guilt. Forgive me, sir." This soldier that wrote this um, had a picture of the man he killed and his daughter. If anyone wants to see this, I'll, I'll leave it up here. It takes a real greatness of heart to include the parts of ourselves we've pushed away. We've pushed them away because there was a lot of hurt, and each of us has done it with parts of ourselves and certainly with people around us. And it's the path of the bodhisattva, of the awakening being, 
to have that bravery and honesty and care to include. It's a capacity we have. It's not something that um, we have to strain for. We care enough that we want to include, but it takes time and it takes patience. Rumi writes, out beyond wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. That's the forgiving, caring heart that recognizes that it's not you or me, it's us, and wants to live in that sense of connectedness. But it's important to remember that this forgiving does not condone harmful behavior. There's such confusion around forgiving that to forgive means, okay, it's okay, go ahead and hurt me again or let me hurt someone else again. And not like that at all. We need appropriate boundaries. We don't need to close our hearts. Sometimes we do close our hearts and then it's just patiently waiting, intending to open when we can and keep boundaries where that's appropriate. But letting those boundaries really arise out of out of the desire to heal, not to hurt. So forgiveness. There's a wonderful cartoon I saw recently, and in it a rabbit was taking a test. And the test was this. Write an essay in response to the following. Farmer McGregor is essentially a decent man. You get it? If that rabbit could do it, we can do it too. (laughs) So the Bodhisattva's intent to not push anyone out of our hearts because pushing a being out of our hearts hardens our hearts. It contracts us. The reason it's possible to open the circle is because we care about life more than we want to defend against life in the long run. Not always in the short run, but eventually. This caring is called bodhicitta, the caring heart. Dalai Lama uh, told someone this about a year and a half ago, and it came through the grapevines, as these Dharma stories do. He said, I'm not sure why people like me. It must be because I value caring. I can't say I always practice it, but I value caring. Mm -hmm. How's that for humility? (laughs) To value caring, even valuing it, even when we don't feel caring, but to remember we value it, opens the door a crack, actually a big way. We naturally care when we're able to see or sense vulnerability or suffering. It naturally happens. This um, response to suffering has been embodied in the Buddhist tradition by the Bodhisattva of Compassion, who's, that's the statue of her there, Kuan Yin. That's the embodiment. It's said that Kuan Yin listens to the cries of the world and is touched and responds with care. Mm-hmm. So we're in bodhisattva training here to cultivate that capacity to listen and to respond. So our practice trains us to first begin to see clearly what's true, to see the armor, to see the contractions, to see the way we hold off, and then to drop under the storyline, to feel directly just what's there. There's a Tibetan practice some of you are familiar with called Tonglen, yeah, some? And it's much like Vipassana, the intention is to feel what's there, to have it, hold it in an open space of awareness. It's coordinated with the breath, though. So with Tonglen, there's a sense of, okay, so there's painfulness. Breathe it in. Breathe in what's dark and heavy and difficult. It's not even saying, okay, just feel it. It's like, breathe it in. Let it, take it in 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 a very cellular way. And then to breathe out spaciousness and compassion, You're breathing out the space of heart-mind that can hold what's been touched, what's been felt. The training in Tonglen is to breathe in 
one's own pain and breathe out, offering compassion, and then to breathe in other beings' pain. (coughs) Breathe it in, breathe out, offer compassion, and then to sense how this pain is pervasive. It's not my fear, it's the fear. And how many beings in this world, all of them, have that same conditioning, that same ache, that same squeeze given certain conditions. And then to breathe in the fear of all beings. Breathe out, offer compassion. Now if you just keep it universal, if our metta, may all beings be free, is universal, or if our tonglen, may all beings be free, you know, and we're breathing in the pain of all beings, is universal, what happens is that it stays theoretical. It can stay conceptual. We're not really going to feel the, the rawness and the tenderness of it. If it's just personal, we forget that it's universal, that it's empty, that it belongs to all beings. We take it very personally. So there's a real wisdom in this practice, whether it's metta or tonglen or compassion practices, to really sense the personalness of it, the right here and now, raw, sticky, messy, whatever, breathe it in, exhale, and also sense how that same experience is part of the uh, karma and biology and psychology of all beings. Together, when you bring those together, the universal and the personal, we breathe in and touch what needs to be felt, we breathe out, we offer space, compassion that heals and liberates. The realization that it's through the vulnerability that we awaken, that that is the path. Let me read you a poem by David White. This is called The Well of Grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. We're so busy armoring the source of what we most cherish. Do you understand? That we harden against the very place of tenderness and vulnerability that most can open our hearts and free us. Resistance is really the identity of the small self. As we begin to soften the armor, we discover the freedom of our being, which is interconnected and which is whole. A friend of mine who comes to IMS, to the Insight Meditation Society, for each New Year's retreat, is slowly but steadily losing his mind to Alzheimer's. He's in the kind of mid-level of it now. And last winter when I was there, he shared a story um, about, that happened about seven years ago when he first began to, um, before he was really aware of it actually, and he was asked to give a talk at a retreat. He's a teacher and he's a medi- and he also sits retreats at IMS. And he was asked to give a, a talk on meditation at a center, and there were going to be about 100 people there. So he prepared his talk and he went and sat in front of everybody and everybody was real quiet meditating. And just as he was about to give the talk, he went totally blank, absolutely blank. I mean, no words, no images. All there was was confusion, disorientation, and fear. Those were the main things he felt. So his talk was simply to report what was going on. Blank, scared, squeezed, afraid, confused, don't know what else to say. And he just, it was kind of like a Vipassana inner recognizing that was being reported outward to this group of people. And he was totally vulnerable and totally honest and right there. And then at the end of having done that for a while, he apologized and he says, I'm really, really sorry I meant to, you know, I just... At which point, 
numbers of students were sitting there with just tears streaming from their eyes. And they told him that they had never been taught Dharma in that way. They had never had someone live it, like in the moment, be vulnerable and live it in that way with such courage that they could just say, confused, don't know, scared, right up front. It was an incredible teaching. It takes such courage to be real, to be willing to feel the vulnerability and not to cover it, not to cover it to ourselves. And that doesn't mean we go around and be this amoeba, like just, you know, dripping with, with uh, you know, beyond tender to everybody in the world, but to know when we can drop it and be as real as possible. Opening and including what we've been pushing away is a way of releasing ownership. As long as we're pushing away our greed or our lust or anger, whatever it is, there's a sense of it's mine and I need to protect from it. Part of the magic of of awakening is that when we're willing to just drop the resistance, it's as Pema Chodron describes it, when the resistance is gone, the demons are gone. When we stop resisting, we also stop owning. It just becomes this impersonal energy or wave of the universe moving through. Not my pain, but the pain of the universe. The states we feel so personally, rage and lust and grief, all of them, are chemically based. They're moods, they're mind states, they're thoughts, there's images and they're universal. They're made of the same stuff that everyone else experiences all the time. So in the deepest way, this path, this bodhisattva path, is guided by the wisdom of connectedness. That we're all part of the same show. What we're experiencing is each other and life. We're the universe recognizing itself in an intensified, wakeful way. We can begin to see that when we stop pushing away. We all love, we all fear. We're together in this. And this connectedness allows us to be responsible to all beings, able to respond to all beings. Because we don't compartmentalize and think, well, I'm different than this person or this group is different. We start to realize it's all of us. Some of you know the bodhisattva vow in in classical terms. The bodhisattva's vow is, may I work endlessly for the liberation of all beings. Now what happens when you hear that? May I work endlessly for the liberation of all beings. When I first heard it, endlessly sounded like a really long time, and all beings sounded like a really lot of people. (laughs) <laughs> and animals and everything. I mean, it just seemed like a lot, like way more than this little self could deal with. And yet there's a way in which as we just moment by moment with honesty just keep including, including whatever it is, more of our body, more of our mind, that we begin to realize the sense of interconnectedness, not in a conceptual way, but just like everything that happens here is happening everywhere else, is affecting everything else. It's all interdependent. And it becomes quite natural to care about all beings and to want to alleviate suffering wherever we can. It becomes really gratifying out of that sense of connectedness to respond with care. Now, there are many different ways that we bodhisattvas are expressing our caring. I mean, some are off in caves in Tibet and have been there for decades and decades, and all they're doing is sitting there and day in, day out, offering blessings to all beings. May each of you out there that suffering be free from suffering. May each of you discover the truth of your Buddha nature and be liberated and be free. And then day after day, just projecting with love these blessings to all beings. I'm glad they're there doing that. I am. And that's not all there is. There's a lot of, there's a lot of doings when they come from a sincere heart that help to heal this world. 
There's people saying prayers for peace. There's also those expressing their love through gardening or feeding homeless people or serving in different capacities or loving the people they're working with, loving their families. There's just countless ways any action that is done from the heart, out of care, becomes helpful. Many of you know that Ram Dass had a stroke last year and he's slowly recovering. And Jack Cornfield went to visit him and was describing in one conversation how Ram Dass, he doesn't have the energy or the interest in going out and doing a lot of public speaking. He's done some, but it's not where he's at. But he said, I tried to have a moment of truth with each person I'm with. Imagine if we just did that. You know, a moment of truth and what that really means. A moment of just dropping all the armor. It doesn't mean being gooey and mushy necessarily, but it might. Just a moment of truth of here we are, you know. Albert Schweitzer writes, I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I do know. The ones among you who will be really happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. We serve as we expand this circle of compassion. We naturally serve. And there are intentional ways to expand the circle. It's part of waking up to feel the deliciousness of connectedness and want to live that more fully and then be more intentional. We do it through metta. Every time we do metta, even if we're not feeling caring, because we're valuing caring, there's some way in which it brings us closer to our beings in the world. We do it through looking at each other and seeing the life, the goodness, the divine in each being. It's a beautiful practice to walk through our days and and have that intent of seeing Buddha nature. I was describing to um, class last Tuesday that I taught how a few years ago an essential part of my metta practice became every person I was with, I'd kind of meditate, ah, a friend, you're my friend, we're friends. And it really didn't matter how well I knew them or whether I had an aversion or attraction. I just posited friendship. And just by saying, oh, friend, you are my friend, there was this way in which my heart included them, even though my personality might not hang out with them. Do you know what I mean? Ah, friends. It's Joanna Macy, who's a teacher on the West Coast and and a friend, um, was describing a retreat in Tibet that she had. And at that retreat, um, they were giving teachings on how all sentient beings have been your mother. Now, whether or not you believe it, this is just the teaching. Well, she was kind of bored with it, with that particular teaching, so she went outside and uh, went for a walk, and she was walking on a path, and towards her came this old woman who was bent over. She has, was carrying a, a load of wood on her back, and then suddenly Joanna had this thought, this woman was once my mother. <laughs> and Although she had walked by lots of women that looked like this before, I mean, many, many women, this time, because she had that thought, she really wanted to see this woman's face. She just really, just, she just kept thinking, she's been my mother, I have to see her face. Now, regardless in our belief about reincarnation, the essence teaching of this practice is it's possible to cultivate a sincere interest in all the beings around us, a sincere caring, a willingness to be a little more present and there, that all the beings that we pass by want love and want to love more fully, want to be happy. We all do. So there's a real freedom in in kind of pulling out of this universe that's centered around us and our defined circle and beginning to sense, and it's an adventure, that each being Each being is part of our world. The power of the practice is when we start right with the beings that we live with and work with and are touched by and continue to touch. I'll read you another story. 
This one's written by Richard Seltzer. He wrote a book called Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery, and I got the book recently, and this is just one of the stories in the book. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously, greedily? The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks? Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All of once I know who he is. I understand, and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I so close that I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. So this bodhisattva vow to work endlessly for the liberation of all beings. Sometimes these examples of great beings, the ones we all know of, are both inspiring and can bring up doubt. They can bring up that sense of, really, who am I to try to liberate all beings? I'm so small. The doubt I mentioned just earlier it becomes really important to remember that there's no small self that's struggling to open the gates of compassion, that's hunkering down, that's going to work really hard to liberate anything. Being a bodhisattva is not another story. It's not another role we take on. Being a bodhisattva is actually the natural activity that arises when we're free from stories and wakefully connected to our heart. It's not another role. It's not a striving. It comes naturally. We naturally care. And we can train ourselves to pay attention. We can train ourselves to notice more that we're friends, that we're in the same boat. But it comes naturally when we drop our stories. It's not another to-do. Most of you know that the story of the Buddha before his enlightenment. He sat under the Bodhi tree all night and he was able to meet all these different arrows of Mara, you know, all the different challenges <coughs> with an open heart and with a clear mind and these arrows turned to flower petals and fell to his feet. But he still wasn't enlightened. And then in the morning he touched the ground and he called on the earth goddess. He called on the divine earth goddess to bear witness, to support him. And it was in that moment that he was totally free. And I reflect on this story all the time because for me the meaning is that it's not like this single man sitting under a tree really doing a very strong good meditation and working through all the tough stuff. It's this being that recognized connectedness with all beings, and it was the web of life, the universal flow of love and wakefulness that expressed itself in freedom. We're not selves having to try hard. The only trying, maybe, is to relax into that web of life that we belong to and that we feel so nurtured by when we let ourselves go into it. And it's something that happens when we pray. I think we all pray. We have our different ways. Some are, are less uh, formal and 
uh, taking the posture than others. But in some way, we all invoke and reach out to the beauty and truth and grace in this universe that really is who we are. But sometimes we have to remember by invoking and reaching out. It's said that prayer is a way of reconnecting to the whole, opening out of the fearful or arrogant small self that is doing and relaxing back into the source. The one who bows and the one who is bowed to are the same. Realizing this gives rise to a wondrous sense of interbeing. It's us. We are the bodhisattva. For some, that experience, that prayer actually comes through just like the Buddha, touching the earth. For most of us, I heard so many stories today in an interview of how um, there was in some way a connecting through sight or touch or sound, some aspect of nature arising outside that was the way of reconnecting, of coming back to sensing the beauty and the mystery and the wholeness of our experience when we lie down on this earth, in some way, we sense wholeness again. To live as a bodhisattva is to touch the spirit of the Buddha within us and to allow that to shine through our individual life. It's not anything to do. It's just to become more fully who we already are. So that I'd like to invite you just to sit up for a few moments and we'll meditate together. Resting in the awareness, in the greatness of heart that includes all this changing flow of life that touches all with compassion. (laughs) 